On this episode of Just an Avocado White Woman, we're going to be tackling the history and occupation of Palestine. For clarifying purposes, when I say Palestine, I mean all of Palestine, including the occupied territories as they exist now. If I reference Israel, I'm referring only to the occupied land, as I don't believe Israel exists. Just a note, there's a lot of unfamiliar words and cities in this episode, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce them correctly, but I do apologize in advance if there's any mispronunciations. When I started researching Palestine and where I wanted to start this episode, the question became, how far back did I want to go? The last 75 years of occupation are the most important in relation to the current genocide, but many people I've seen on the internet have brought up that Jewish people existed in the region before the Palestinian people, and the land was rightfully theirs. So I'm going to go further back in history to address this. The earliest human remains were found in Ubedua, or what is now occupied Golan Heights, on the east side of the Tiberias Lake from Palestine. These dated back 1.5 million years. Between 10,000 and 5,000 BCE, agricultural communities were established. Evidence of such sediments were found at Tel Sultan in Jericho and consisted of a number of walls, a religious shrine, and a 23-foot tower with an internal staircase. Jericho is believed to be one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world, with evidence of a settlement dating back to 9000 BCE. If you're unsure of where Jericho is, it's on the east side of what is currently the West Bank, north of the Dead Sea. While there is evidence that a land of Canaan existed in the Late Bronze Age, as evidenced through Near Eastern inscriptions dated 15th century BCE to 9th century BCE, which Zionists renamed Israel to justify their claim, in which is now northern Palestine, Syria, and the Mediterranean coast of Lebanon, it did not stay canon. The earliest known use of the term Palestine is from 1300 BCE from Egyptian sources. Other variations also include Palashtu, Pilashtu, Palashtu, Palashtu, from ancient Egyptian and Assyrian inscriptions and texts, Palashtina from Roman and Byzantine sources, Palashtina from modern Hebrew sources, and one in Greek that I cannot pronounce. The region was conquered many times over the centuries, first by the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE, then the Babylonians in 601 BCE, followed by the Persians in 539 BCE. Then came Alexander the Great conquering in the late 330s BCE, which began a long period of Hellenization in the region. Hellenization is the adoption of Greek culture, religion, language, and identity by non-Greeks. So during that time, any religion or culture in the region was changed. This includes the Jewish Hebrew scriptures into Greek, a translation which survives and which we know as the Septuagint. Coins of Palestinian cities can be traced back all the way to 538 BCE in Gaza. 
So far, there have been approximately 400 varieties of ancient Palestinian coins found. Zionists assert their religious entitlement to the land, but despite over 150 years of numerous biblical excavations in and around the old city of Jerusalem, there is a notable absence of historical material or empirical proof supporting the existence of the Kingdom of David from 1000 BCE, a claim integral to their argument for a theocratic ethnostate in Palestine. The absence of evidence can be attributed to the fact that the narratives in the Old Testament are essentially fabricated. While conventional academics teaching biblical texts often treat them as sacred literature, historians and archaeologists with a more precise perspective categorize them as just literature and social memory, recognizing their evolution over time rather than as accurate historical accounts. Archaeological discoveries from a 3,000-year-old Philistine graveyard in Ashkelon suggest that the people of Palestine did not appear from the sea as marauders in the late Bronze Age, as many claim, but are an indigenous population of the Near East. Ashkelon is just north of the modern Gaza Strip. In the late century BCE, the Ashmonian kingdom conquered most of Palestine and parts of neighboring regions, but the kingdom gradually became a vassal of Rome which annexed the area in 63 AD. If you look on many sites online, all of them I could find, that talk about the history of Israel, this is when they claim Jewish people were expelled from the region. Yet today in Palestine, there are still Mizrahi Jews, Sephardic Jews, Arab Christians, and Arab Muslims. So now that we've established Palestine's long history, let's move on to the colonization of Palestine, the creation of Israel by the British, the Balfour Declaration, and Zionism. For those who may not be up to date, Zionism is a Jewish nationalist movement with the objective of establishing a Jewish ethnostate in the region of Palestine. Interestingly, there are presently more Christian Zionists globally than there are Jewish individuals. Feel free to interpret and consider this information as you see fit. The first time Zionism was brought up was in 1895 by Theodore Herzl, who wrote in his journal, quote, We must expropriate gently the private property on the estates assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries while denying it employment in our own country. The property owners will come over to our side. Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly." Unquote. In 1897, there was the first Zionist Congress in London. At its conclusion, it agreed, quote, to create a publicly guaranteed homeland for the Jewish people, unquote, in Palestine. It also set up the Zionist organization with Herzl as president. Later, in a letter sent by Yusuf Daya, the mayor of Jerusalem, on March 1, 1899, to Herzl, he implored, quote, In the name of God, let Palestine be left alone, unquote. During 1917, while Palestine was still under the control of the Ottoman Empire, the Balfour Declaration was signed. Arthur Balfour was British, 
yet he was a known racist and anti-Semite. He embraced Zionism because he wanted to keep the UK a white Christian ethnostate, and he was concerned about the Jewish immigration after World War I since he viewed Jews as, quote, alien hostile bodies. When he wrote of the indigenous people of Palestine in the Declaration, he did not even refer to them as Palestinians or Arabs, just as non-Jewish. The information contained in the Balfour Declaration took more than two years to reach a significant portion of Palestine. Local newspapers had been closed down at the onset of the war, and when British troops seized control of Jerusalem in December 1917, the publication of the Declaration was prohibited. The news eventually reached Palestine through oral communication and copies of Egyptian newspapers carried by travelers from Cairo. By that time, many were exhausted from the war and just returning to their homes. They protested, but their voices, and any chance they had to fight, were effectively cut off by the statement in the Balfour Declaration since they weren't seen as human any longer. Instead of adapting to the commonly spoken Arabic language in Palestine, Ashkenazi Jews, as they colonized the region, persisted in using Hebrew. Despite efforts by Mizrahi Jews to foster understanding between communities, a shift occurred when the British assumed control from the Ottoman Empire. Some Mizrahi Jews decided to align with white supremacy at this time, distancing themselves from their Palestinian roots. This transition was marked by changes in street signs and the displacement of people from their lands, ultimately leading to the declaration of Hebrew as the official language. From 1936 to 1939, Palestine witnessed an Arab uprising against the British administration, driven by the desire for Arab independence and a cessation of the policy allowing unrestricted Jewish immigration and land acquisitions aimed at establishing a Jewish national home. This rebellion coincided with a surge in Jewish immigration, reaching around 60,000 that year. Under British influence, the Jewish population had expanded from 57,000 to 320,000 in 1935. The White Paper of 1939, a policy document issued by the British government during the London Conference of 1939 under Neville Chamberlain in response to the 1936 to 1939 Arab Revolt in Palestine, prompted strong opposition. On April 17, 1939, the or General Organization of Workers in Israel initiated a campaign against the proposal. Within the initial month following the conference, more than 1,700 Jewish illegal immigrants entered Palestine. On May 17th, in conjunction with the release of the white paper, acts of resistance occurred, including the cutting of telephone wires and attacks on government offices. Riots erupted in Jerusalem and Jewish assaults on Arabs and government property persisted throughout the summer. Illegal immigration also rose, with 6,323 arrivals recorded between April and October. The formal approval of the White Paper in the House of Commons on May 23, 1939, solidified its role as the governing policy for Palestine until the British departure in 1948. Post-war, the mandate was brought before the United Nations. By May 15, 1948, 
80% of the Arab population had experienced displacement from their homes, lands, and properties. Out of the 1.3 million Palestinians, 720,000 became refugees, and the territory they were expelled from was rebranded as the State of Israel. The newly established Zionist state now controlled over 78% of Palestine, exercising authority over the remaining 160,000 Palestinian Arabs who managed to stay. This marks the conclusion of the first Nakba. Before beginning the study of Palestine, I had never heard the term Nakba before. Translated, it means the catastrophe. In actuality, it was the violent displacement and dispossession of Palestinians and the destruction of their society, culture, identity, political rights, and national aspirations. By 1952, a significant number of the Arabs who stayed in Israel during its colonization, constituting a comparable proportion of the Israel population, lived predominantly in Western Galilee, just east of Nazareth. Due to land confiscation, many Arabs had to shift from agriculture to unskilled labor in Jewish industries and construction. While theoretically guaranteed equal religious and civil rights, they lived under military jurisdiction until 1966, facing restrictions on political engagement and freedom of movement. Despite these challenges, many remained politically passive, while some saw improvement through electoral participation education, and economic integration. In December 1948, the Jericho Conference was held, where Transjordan declared the annexation of the West Bank with the following provisions. 1. Palestine Arabs desire unity between Transjordan and Arab Palestine, and therefore make known their wish that Arab Palestine be annexed immediately to Transjordan. They also recognize Abdullah as their king, and requests himself king of new territory. 2. Palestine Arabs express gratitude to Arab states for their efforts on behalf of the liberation of Palestine. 3. Expression of thanks to Arab states for the generous assistance and support to Palestine Arab refugees. 4. Resolve that purport of first resolution be conveyed to the king at once. Thereafter, affluent Palestinians inhabited towns on both the eastern and western banks of the Jordan River, vying for governmental positions while the rural population, or Felahan, peasants, or farmers, found residence in UN refugee camps. Jordan's population was now predominantly Palestinian, making up about two-thirds of the total. Although half the seats in the Jordanian Chamber of Deputies were allocated for representatives from the Western Bank, attempts to integrate the Western Bank with the region east of the Jordan River faced challenges due to the significant social, economic, educational, and political disparities between the two areas. Jordanian Palestinians, excluding the influential families favored by the Jordanian monarchy, tended to align with the radical pan-Arab and anti-Israel policies advocated by Egypt's President Gamal Abdel Nassar, rather than the more cautious and conciliatory stance of Jordan's King Hassan. In December 1948, the UN General Assembly created the UNRWA, or the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, for Palestine refugees 
in the Near East to assist. By May 1950, there were a total of 53 refugee camps on both sides of the Jordan River and in the Gaza Strip, Lebanon, and Syria to assist 700,000-plus Arab refugees. Initially, refugees lived in tents, but after 1958, the tents were replaced by small houses of concrete block with iron roofs. Between 1948 to 1967, the Gaza Strip was under Egyptian control. While only 25 miles long by 4 to 5 miles wide, it became one of the most densely populated areas of the world. The rule of Egypt was extremely oppressive, and Palestinians were denied citizenship, which left them with little control over any local administration. There were times they were allowed to attend Egyptian universities and elect local officials. Due to the high population density, the region experienced pervasive poverty and social distress as a routine aspect of life. Unemployment rates were elevated, and a considerable number of Palestinians, much like those in the West Bank, relied on UN assistance while residing in refugee camps. The once accessible agricultural lands were now out of reach, and stringent restrictions on industry prevailed. Despite these challenges, commerce thrived in Gaza, functioning as a duty-free port for Egyptians. While some Palestinians managed to leave the Gaza Strip for education and employment opportunities elsewhere, the majority had no choice but to remain, even in the absence of significant natural resources and employment prospects. The Six-Day War in June 1967 was triggered by escalating attacks on Israel by Palestinian guerrilla groups from Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. Israeli reprisals intensified, culminating in a preemptive air assault on June 5th, destroying a significant portion of Egypt and Syria's for air forces. In response to the perceived threat from Arab neighbors, Israel achieved overwhelming victories on the ground, capturing the Gaza Strip. Sinai Peninsula, East Jerusalem, West Bank, and the Golan Heights. A UN ceasefire was called on June 7th, with Israel, Jordan, and eventually Egypt accepting, while Syria continued shelling until June 10th. Arab casualties were significant, with over 11,000 for Egypt, 6,000 for Jordan, and 1,000 for Syria, compared to 700 for Israel. The war marked the beginning of a new phase in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, resulting in a large number of refugees and bringing over a million Palestinians under Israeli rule. UN Resolution 242 in November 1967 called for Israelis' withdrawal from captured territories in exchange for lasting peace, becoming a basis for diplomatic efforts and agreements, including the Camp David Accords with Egypt and the pursuit of a two-state solution with the Palestinians. The Palestine Liberation Organization, or PLO, was founded in 1964 as the primary embodiment of the Palestinian National Movement, serving as a broad coalition encompassing various resistance movements, political parties, popular organizations, and independent figures. 
Recognized as a sole and legitimate representative of the Palestinian people by the Arab Summit in 1974, the PLO has represented Palestine in international forums, including the United Nations. Beyond political goals, the PLO established institutions for health, education, and social services. Its structure includes the Palestine National Council, or PNC, the highest decision-making body, the Central Council, an intermediary body, and the Executive Committee, the daily leading body. Additionally, the Palestine Liberation Army, or PLA, formed in 1964 as a PLO's military branch, underwent structural changes over time, and with the establishment of the Palestine National Authority in the mid-1990s, parts of its brigade were absorbed into the PNA security forces. In 1975, Palestinian guerrilla activities along the southern Lebanese border led to significant Israeli attacks on Palestinian refugee camps, alleged to be guerrilla bases. However, Israeli actions were overshadowed by the escalation of civil strife in Lebanon along Muslim-Christian lines, culminating in a civil war that spanned 15 years, resulting in over 100,000 casualties. The presence of Palestinians contributed to the conflict, proving disastrous for them. Initially attempting to avoid direct involvement, the PLO found factions within the organization aligning with Muslim and leftist groups against Christians by the end of 1975. In January 1976, widespread fighting erupted as Christian forces blockaded Palestinian refugee camps, prompting retaliatory attacks on Christian villages by Palestinian forces and their Lebanese allies. Despite efforts, the PLO was unable to protect the Palestinian population. In August 1976, Christian forces, after a two-month siege, killed an estimated 2,000 to 3,000 Palestinians in the Tal al-Zatar camp near Beirut. A peace agreement was negotiated in October 1976, leading to the creation of the Arab Deferment Force, a nationwide ceasefire, withdrawal of forces, and adherence to a 1969 agreement limiting Palestinian guerrilla operations in Lebanon. Despite heavy losses in the civil war, Palestinian guerrillas continued attacks against Israel in the late 1970s, prompting Israeli raids into southern Lebanon. In 1978, a Palestinian raid into Israel led to Operation Litani, an Israeli invasion of southern Lebanon. The UN passed Resolution 425, calling for Israel's withdrawal and establishing UNIFIL. Israel partially withdrew, maintaining occupation along the southern frontier. The Israeli aim to destroy Palestinian guerrillas and their bases south of Litani River was only partly successful, with estimates of several hundred guerrilla casualties and most escaping northward. Civilian casualties ranged from 1,000 to 2,000. In opposition to the PLO, Israelis sought to establish Hamas, which is an Arabic acronym for Islamic Resistance Movement, in hopes they would wipe each other out. This is supported by former Israeli officials such as Brig General Hizhat Sejev, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza in the early 1980s. Sejev later told a New York Times reporter that he had helped finance the Palestinian Islamic movement as a counterweight to the secularists and leftists of the PLO and the Fatah party led by Yasser Arafat. So initially, Israelis played a role in fostering a militant strain of Palestinian political Islam, 
supporting the development of Hamas and its Islam Brotherhood predecessors. Subsequently, Israel shifted its approach, attempting to eliminate Hamas through bombing, besiegement, and blockades. In the last 20 years, Israel engaged in conflicts with Hamas four times, in 2009, 2012, 2014, and now in 2023, resulting in approximately 16,500 Palestinian civilian casualties in Gaza during the past 15 years. On September 28, 1953, the Israeli Defense Forces established the fortified settlement of Katazit near the El Ajit Junction, claiming it as a pioneering farm settlement. Despite housing shoulders in civilian attire and minimal farming, Israel contended it did not violate the Egyptian-Israeli armistice agreement in the 99-acre demilitarized zone. The remaining members of the Azazmian tribe relying on the Al-Ajja well, were forcibly displaced to Egypt. Today, the prison is both the largest overall and the largest in terms of land. In 1954, Kazazit Kibbutz member driving a water truck crossed into Egypt, revealing the military nature of the settlement to the Egyptians and UN observers. By early 1956, Kazazit had squad tents and a small runway, later serving as the IDF's entry point into the Sinai Peninsula in 1956 and 1967. On March 18, 1988, around 700 prisoners were transferred from prisons in the Gaza Strip to the newly prepared prison camp. Four days later, Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin announced 3,000 Palestinians were under arrest and a new prison has been opened in the Nikkev Desert. By July 1989, around 4,275 prisoners, mostly from the West Bank and Gaza, were held in 24-man tents with reported privacy issues, censorship, and limited reading materials. Six prisoners have been killed by fellow inmates accused of collaborating or, quote, immoral activity. The prison was closed during 1995. As we're aware, a two-state solution has never come to pass for Palestine. The Oslo Accords, consisting of Oslo I in 1993 and Oslo II in 1995, initiated the Oslo process, aiming for a peace treaty between Israel and the PLO. Notable outcomes included the creation of the Palestinian National Authority for limited self-governance in parts of the West Bank and Gaza. While recognizing each other, key issues like Israeli settlements, Jerusalem's status, and the right of return remained unresolved. The Accords face oppositions from Palestinians and far-right Israelis. Rabin, Israeli's prime minister at the time, was assassinated in 1995 by a right-wing Israeli extremist for signing the Oslo Accords. Palestinian discontent during the Oslo peace process from 1993 to 2000 intensified due to unmet expectations of improved living conditions and freedom under Israeli occupation. Instead, conditions worsened, leading to widespread resentment. The land disparity was also vast. The failure of Camp David summit in July 2000 fueled a desire for more confrontational stance against Israel. Additionally, Ariel Sharon's intentionally provocative visit to the Temple Mount on September 28, 2000, marked the start of the Second Intifada, 
exacerbating tensions. The subsequent roadmap for peace aimed at a two-state solution faced challenges similar to the Oslo process without achieving an agreement. In response to the Second Intifada, Israel reopened four sections of the Kazatz prison in April 2002, each comprising four units and an additional half-section introduced in October 2002. Enclosed by a five-meter wall, each unit held three tents designed for under 20 men, but overcrowding was common. The units had minimal sanitation facilities with three toilets per unit and one liter of chlorine used every 20 days. Defense for Children International, or DCI, reported several issues, including a lack of family visits, overcrowding, inadequate food, absence of supplied clothing, assaults and theft by guards, lack of medical care, exposure to harsh weather, absence of child-specific procedures for those aged 16 and 17, no educational materials, and the presence of rodents. Up to 2003, the prison housed approximately 1,000 prisoners, primarily administrative detainees, with 30 to 60 boys under 18. Now, if you do some math from above, four units, three tents, each designed for under 20 men. They did open another half unit, so we'll throw that in there. Four and a half units times three tents times 20 men max equals 270 prisoners. Yet in 2003, there were 1,000 prisoners. That's almost four times what the facility should have been handling. I cannot imagine the filthy conditions they were living in. When examining the maps of the Oslo Accords, three designated areas can be identified. Area A, under Palestinian control, Area C, under Israeli control, and Area B, designated for joint control. The Israeli strategy appears to involve dismantling Palestinian sentiments in the West Bank, reminiscent of how U.S. politicians employed gerrymandering to create advantageous voting areas within the United States. Since the 1990s, Israeli forces have created hundreds of permanent roadblocks and checkpoints within the West Bank before erecting a wall around the West Bank in 2005, stating terrorist incidents as their cause, though the only terrorism has been on their side. After the wall's erection, they pulled out of four illegal settlements in the West Bank, but not before destroying the houses they had occupied so they could no longer be used. These checkpoints, which numbered at 522 during the last count in September of 2011, exert an adverse authoritarian control over Palestinian people. Cars of Palestinians are required to have a specific colored plate for easy identification and sometimes are not even allowed to use the same rows as Israelis, even though they are in a territory which is supposed to be theirs. Shufat Camp, situated on the outskirts of Jerusalem, was established by UNRWA in 1965 to provide better housing for approximately 500 refugee families from Muaskar camp in the old city of Jerusalem. After the 1967 hostilities, Israel illegally annexed the camp, but its residents still hold Jerusalem IDs, allowing them to reside in the city. 
Due to the policy of revoking IDs from Palestinians not centered in Jerusalem, the camp attracts non-refugees with Jerusalem IDs seeking affordable living. The resulting overcrowding intensified after the construction of the West Bank barrier in 2003, placing Shufat on the West Bank side and isolating residents from East Jerusalem. Access to Jerusalem now requires passing through a congested checkpoint. While passing through the checkpoints, Palestinians can be detained for any reason, or no reason at all, and for hours on end, which leads to many being late to jobs or classes. In 2008, an Israeli soldier in command of a checkpoint outside Nablus was discharged and imprisoned for two weeks after he refused to allow a Palestinian woman in labor to pass through. The woman was forced to give birth at the checkpoint and the baby was stillborn. Between 2000 and 2006, at least 68 women gave birth at checkpoints, of whom 35 miscarried and 5 died in childbirth, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Tens of thousands of Palestinian workers holding Israeli permits endure a daily pre-dawn journey through overcrowded and humiliating checkpoints to reach workplaces in Israeli and Palestinian cities beyond the Green Line, the term used for the borders that were set by the 1949 armistice agreements that define the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. With a 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. time frame, laborers face long queues, arriving as early as 3 a.m. to secure their spot. The commute is driven by high unemployment in the Palestinian territories, resulting from the 50-year Israeli occupation. Limited by time on their permits, workers must return home daily, but some are sleeping at workplaces due to checkpoint conditions, only seeing their families on weekends. Some permits cost $500 to $700 per month, what amounts to a third or half of their earnings. The checkpoints, lacking infrastructure and sanitation, have led to tragic incidents, with some laborers being crushed to death. Even within the West Bank, Israelis continue to establish illegal settlements and encroach on Palestinians today. There are between 600,000 to 750,000 Israeli settlers living in at least 250 settlements. 130 of these are official and 120 of these are unofficial in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. Israeli settlements are illegal under international law as they violate the Fourth Geneva Convention, which prohibits an occupying power from transferring its population to the area it occupies. In 2019, under the presidency of Donald Trump, the U.S. declared that Israeli settlements on occupied Palestinian land were, quote, not necessarily illegal, unquote. A dramatic break from the decades of U.S. policy, yet not surprising to anyone that follows the absolute shitshow of clownassery that comes out of his mouth. Israeli's largest banks can be implicated in supporting and expanding unlawful settlements in the West Bank. They finance construction projects on seized Palestinian land, partner with developers, and provide loans to settlement councils. These activities contribute to war crimes, discriminatory practices, and serious violations of international humanitarian law. Human Rights Watch urges banks to cease business with Israeli settlements to align with human rights responsibilities as their involvement inherently contributes to abuses. 
Their abuses also extend to the land and the agricultural through the olive trees, which are a vital role of Palestinian economy, contributing to 14% of it, with products ranging from the olive oil to soaps. Family-owned farms responsible for cultivation and production are crucial for sustaining around 800,000 Palestinian families, especially given the high unemployment rate. Beyond economic significance, olive trees symbolize Palestinians' attachment to their land, serving as a resilient reminder of their history, with many dating back centuries prior to the Israeli occupation. Since 1967, over 800,000 Palestinian olive trees have been unlawfully uprooted, with over 9,000 removed in August 2021 alone. The destruction, driven by the expansion of settlements in the West Bank, violently impacts Palestinian families' livelihoods. Farmers face obstacles like limited access permits, with only 24% approved in 2020 hindering year-round land access. Renewing permits is uncertain, and militarized forces restrict water access, leading to calculated attacks and tree vandalization, particularly during harvesting season. The deforestation of Palestinian olive trees has severe environmental consequences, causing irreversible climate change, soil erosion, and reduced crop yields. Olive trees, acting as carbon sinks, absorb 11 kilograms of CO2 per liter of olive oil. Uprooting these trees not only increases food insecurity, but also leads to aesthetic degradation and loss of vegetation, contributing to a catastrophic decline in Palestinian livelihoods. Israeli courts' failure to deliver environmental justice further oppresses Palestinians in occupied territories. The destruction and restriction of Palestinian olive trees serves as a method of economic control by Israel, enabling further land expansion. This has socioeconomic repercussions, including increased crime rates, land dispossession, and heightened police presence. Palestinians not only lose their cultural practice of, of olive agriculture, but also face a clear violation of their human rights. Recent incidents, like the uprooting of 2,000 olive trees in Karawait Banhi Hassan, illustrate ongoing Israeli actions. Despite efforts by NGOs to rebuild lost agriculture, the lengthy growth of olive trees poses a challenge, leaving many farmers unable to witness another harvest in their lifetime. As Palestinians transition away from agriculture, the future of olive tree traditions becomes uncertain emphasizing the need to reduce restrictions and attacks on Palestinian agriculture for the olive tree to thrive amid Israel's territorial acquisition in the West Bank. Many Jewish Zionists today will automatically call you anti-Semitic if you claim support for Palestine, as if you're saying you want them to die and not you don't want Palestinians to die which is not what we're saying. Keep in mind there are Palestinian Jews as well. You can be both anti-Zionist and Jewish. There's a whole organization of Jewish people that fight for the liberation of all people called Jewish Voice for Peace. They support a ceasefire on Palestine. 
Even Jewish people not in the organization support a free Palestine. Just listen to this interview of a Jewish man taken out of protest in Britain. Well, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm Israeli. My parents were the only survivors of their families from the Holocaust. They both survived Auschwitz. I'm not going to support genocide, am I? I'm here with the Palestinians and we are here with Palestine because we don't believe that what the British government is doing is correct. The British government is supporting this genocide. It's arming Israel, it's financing Israel. BBC and the other media here is supporting genocide. This is illegal, this is immoral. We don't agree with it. We will never agree with it. And as Jews and myself as Israeli, I am totally against it and we will continue to be against it. There are now more than 60 such events in the whole of Britain. Uh, people don't want to support this. They are against this government on so many other issues, but especially on this one. And also, this didn't start on October the 7th. In 1948, Palestinian villages, hundreds of them, were, were demolished. Thousands of Palestinian, innocent Palestinian men, women and children were slaughtered and 750,000 Palestinian refugees were created. That's when it started and it hasn't stopped since. The information disseminated by Israel is not merely a spontaneous collection of ideas. Rather, they have systematically documented their propaganda in a comprehensive 18-chapter book known as the 2009 Israel Global Language Dictionary. This guide instructs Zionists on specific talking points, advises on what to avoid mentioning, and provides guidance on how to respond when confronted with valid criticisms regarding the events in Palestine. In 2014, the Center for Political and Development Studies organized an event dedicated to the examination of this book. Notable scholars, academics, and delegates from media organizations, national political parties, and think tanks actively participated in the discussions. Dr. Mosir Amir, one of the attendees, emphasized the importance of addressing the conflict with Israeli occupation from a humanitarian perspective. He asserted that the focus should be on exposing Israeli crimes that contravene both international and humanitarian law. The Palestinian people have never stopped protesting the occupation of their homeland. The West has just stopped paying attention. The wall around Gaza was finished in 1996, making Gaza a concentration camp. While Israel withdrew ground troops from the Gaza Strip in 2005, their control of the area never stopped. They still maintain an illegal air, sea, and land blockade and an access-restricted area within Gaza. They cut off more than 2 million Palestinians from other parts of the occupied Palestinians' territories and the outside world for 10 years. Their natural resources, such as water, have been restricted as well, to the point that they have four times less access to safe, clean water than Israelis. The Great March of Return were a series of peaceful demonstrations held each Friday in the Gaza Strip near the Gaza-Israeli border from March 30, 2018 until December 27, 2019. A total of 223 Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces during this time. The demonstrators demanded that the Palestinian refugees 
must be allowed to return to lands they were displaced from and protested against the Israelis' land, air, and sea blockade of the Gaza Strip. In an article released this past Saturday, November 18th, new reports have found that an Israeli military helicopter opened fire on Palestinian fighters on October 7th, causing injuries to Israelis participating in a nearby festival. According to reports from Haaretz and Yedioth Aronthoth, the Israeli forces had difficulty identifying the Hamas fighters leading to the use of artillery against civilians at the festival. Hamas fighters had intentionally blended in with the crowd, attempting to deceive the Air Force. So the Air Force knew there were their own civilians below when it opened fire, yet they didn't seem to care. They used this as yet another way to justify their attacks. In a June 2021 article, Mahmoud al-Hafif reported that a recent study by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, the UNCTAD, pointed out new discoveries of natural gas in the Levant Basin directly off the coast of Palestine. The estimates are in the range of 122 trillion cubic feet, with an estimated 1.7 billion barrels. They offer approximately 524 billion to whoever is able to collect on it. Under the Oslo II agreement, the waters up to 20 nautical miles from the coast were given to Palestine under the maritime jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority, or PA. The Israeli military occupation of Palestinian territories since 1967 and the blockade of the Gaza Strip since 2007 have prevented the Palestinian people from exercising any control over their own fossil fuel resources, denying them the much-needed fiscal and export revenues and leaving the Palestinian economy on the verge of collapse. Under occupation, the economic costs for Palestinians are well-documented, including tight restrictions on movement, property confiscation, loss of resources, a fragmented domestic market, and illegal Israeli settlement expansion. Despite the Palestinian Authority's 1999 gas exploration agreement with the British Gas Group for the Gaza Marine Field, initial discussions on gas sales for crucial revenue to the occupied territories haven't yielded benefits. As per the Paris Protocol, Israeli controls Palestinian monetary policy, borders, and trade collecting taxes dispersed to the Palestinian government. UNCTAD estimates that a 47.7 billion loss in fiscal revenues under occupation from 2007 to 2017, with the Palestinian government's development spending at 4.5 billion under the same period. Since the 2007 blockade of Gaza, the Israeli government has assumed de facto control over Gaza's offshore natural gas reserves. The contractor, British Gas, now interacts directly with the Israeli government, circumventing the Palestinian government concerning exploration and development rights. Furthermore, Israel has seized control of the Mejed 
oil, and natural gas field in the occupied West Bank, asserting that it lies west of the 1948 armistice line, despite the majority of the reservoir being situated beneath Palestinian territory occupied since 1967. So, like always, comes back to land, to money. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be 46 days since the genocide of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip has begun. During the first six days after October 7th, Israel dropped more bombs in the Gaza Strip than the U.S. did in any month after their fight against ISIS. On Monday night, as I write this portion before recording, there have been 14,000 deaths. About 6,000 of those have been children. But it is not just the Gaza Strip under attack. Villages in the West Bank have been under curfew and lockdown. This means no one is allowed to enter or exit those villages, and they cannot leave their homes for any reason after a certain hour. This has had a devastating effect on the Palestinian economy, with business sales being cut to 50% and only 80% of salaries being paid out. Since October 7th, at least 250 Palestinians have been martyred by Israel in the West Bank, including 50 children, and 2,750 more have been injured. Additionally, over 5,000 Palestinians in the West Bank have been detained, and Palestinian boys and men are in danger of imprisonment for simply leaving their homes. The other deep concern during this genocide is the death of journalists that we've seen. So far, 50 journalists and media workers, 45 Palestinian, 4 Israeli, and one Lebanese have been reported. Beyond the deaths, 11 journalists have been reported injured, three journalists have been reported missing, and 18 journalists have been reported arrested. Why is this a concern? Because under Article 79 of Additional Protocol 1, journalists have the same rights and protection as civilians in international armed conflicts. This extends to non-international armed conflicts through customary international law. By substituting journalists for civilian in relevant conventions, it becomes evident that journalists, as civilians, are shielded against direct attacks unless actively participating in hostilities. Violations of this rule constitute a serious breach of the Geneva Conventions and Additional Protocol 1, and intentionally targeting a civilian, including a journalist, amounts to a war crime under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. We've witnessed numerous videos depicting horrifying scenes, such as children being dismembered, people buried, and individuals shot in the back. Children have been writing their names on their arms just in case they're not in one piece when they're found. Family members screaming in agony as they identify their loved ones. Journalists finding out it's their family they're having to report on. Doctors having to operate on their own children with no meds because there's no other way, and then the child dying anyway. There are also videos released by Israeli soldiers showing prisoners being tortured, of them kidnapping West Bank residents where Hamas isn't even present, and subjecting them to torture. 
Additionally, there are instances of unarmed men being shot. When their family members attempt to retrieve the bodies, they too end up being shot. Israeli residents have been seen laughing and cheering at the bombing and deaths of Palestinians in Gaza. One incident involves their arrest, or at least police showing up at her door, since I do not speak the language of a Palestinian woman in Israel, solely for expressing support for free Palestine online. The prevalence of these war crimes is deeply troubling, especially in the context of the ongoing refusal by the United States and Britain to call for a ceasefire. In addition to employing a substantial number of bombs that target schools, mosques, hospitals, and areas designated as safe zones for Palestinians, Israel also uses white phosphorus munitions in violation of international law. While intended for smoke screens, Israeli troops deploy white phosphorus over civilian areas. This highly reactive and toxic substance poses significant risks to human health, causing severe burns on the skin and internal damage through inhalation. Even in small amounts absorbed through the skin, white phosphorus can be toxic resulting in systemic issues affecting internal organs. Gazans have no weapons. The citizens are deprived of basic necessities, lacking access to food, water, electricity, and aid. Despite trucks being queued on the Egyptian side of the gate, Israel refuses entry. The denial of these essentials suggests that their ultimate objective extends beyond addressing Hamas. There are concerns that it may be geared toward achieving a complete genocide. Some individuals are already discussing Gaza's potential transformation into a parking lot. Amidst the ongoing loss of lives, some seem to have dismissed these realities from their consciousness. We woke up to Google and Apple Maps removing Palestine completely on October 31st. And it seems like most people don't even notice. The polls do show that 66% overall, both Democrat and Republican, of the civilian population in the U.S. want a ceasefire in Palestine. Yet the people who are supposed to be representing us are only polling at an average of 4%, and none of them are Republicans. We've seen the Congress censor Rashiba Tlaib the only Palestinian in America, stating her comment of from the river to the sea was terroristic, yet we see the white men of Congress saying racist things all the time with no repercussions. We've seen the walkout of congressional staffers as they stage a vigil in support of a ceasefire on October 8th after being tired of taking calls that they knew their representatives weren't going to heed. Like many of you, I've been watching on in horror as these atrocities have been occurring and feeling mostly helpless. This past weekend, we saw Meta and TikTok take unprecedented measures to silence some of the largest voices from Palestine that are on the ground, stating that they are spreading false information. Yet they allow Israeli people to make spoof videos making fun of those just trying to survive or fake being a doctor in a hospital. They are throwing up warnings when you try to make posts with the terms Free Palestine in the caption stating the term has been reported. So how can you make a difference when you're in America? You can march and be loud, 
share every post you see from journalists posting from Palestine right now, or anyone sharing knowledge about the truth of Palestine and not the propaganda put out by Israel, U.S., British, and French governments. Vote with your conscience, both on the local and federal level. I found a socialist party that I've decided to back, but make sure you do your own research. You can also use apps like Five Calls to help look at current issues and help you make calls to your representatives. Boycott with your money. Find local stores and markets to support instead of large corporations. This won't be possible for everyone, obviously. As already established in the previous episode, poverty is rampant in America today. But small, conscious decisions are still decisions. You can also join organizations like Code Pink, be on the ground for protests. They tackle many issues, including the occupation of Palestine, demilitarization, teaching about the cost of war, both in terms of human and environmental consequences, and tackling the wealth of propaganda that is out there about China, Cuba, Iraq, and Iran. In the past month, we've observed not only individuals expressing their position against Israel, but also witnessed companies taking a stand on the matter. Although sometimes you have to look a little deeper into those stances and the parent companies behind them, such as Ben and Jerry's. Though they support Palestine, ultimately they are owned by Unilever, who backs Israel. Ben and Jerry's sued Unilever in 2022 to try to prevent them from selling their ice cream in Israel, but it failed. Ben and Jerry's no longer takes profits from business in Israel and have made this statement. While our parent company has taken this decision, we do not agree with it, they said. We continue to believe it is inconsistent with Ben and Jerry's values for our ice cream to be sold in the occupied Palestinian territory. One of the more concerning ones that I've seen has been the Sheen Company. They came under criticism after removing the Israeli flag but continuing to offer the Palestinian flags on their website. They also terminated all their partnership with Israeli influencers. The site was previously popular with Israeli customers who are now protesting. I bet you're asking why is this concerning? Seems like a good thing, right? On the surface, yes. But now there are more supporters for Sheen, saying they'll buy from them due to their support for Palestine. But Sheen is one of the biggest fast fashion companies in the world. Fast fashion contributes to human trafficking and climate change in multiple different ways, which is what we'll tackle on next Wednesday's episode of Just an Avocado White Woman. Tomorrow, I'll be releasing a bonus episode about the truth of Thanksgiving. If you want more information than I included here, please see the reference materials I included in my show notes. The books and articles I read for information were extensive and vast and deserve way more attention than I could give them on just one episode of my podcast. <laughs>